This is Coda Radio, episode 522 for June 12th, 2023. Hello, friend, and welcome into Jupiter Broadcasting's weekly talk show, taking a pragmatic look at the art and the business of software development and the world of technology. My name is Chris, and joining me for a podcast marathon, it's our host, Mr. Dominic. Hello, Mike. Hello, hello. How are you? Hey, handsome. Good. I'm feeling like, you know, I'm setting into a new worldview that I'm comfortable with. I got my big, one of my biggest problems right now is weeds, you know? Oh, that and a, that and a car car issue. Oh, but, you know, oh, I hate cars. It's issues. not bad. The ad market's burning down around me, and I have honestly come to peace with it. It's really nice not to be panicking, you know? My biggest problem is weeds. There you go. But uh, I feel like Microsoft's maybe got it figured out, too. They have, you know, a gaming CEO. That's what they call the guy in charge of the gaming division is their CEO, Phil Spencer. Uh, he says that Microsoft doesn't feel an imperative from their users to do a new Xbox. He thinks they'd prefer to just keep the hardware they have and focus on games and services for it. Uh, they say the gaming revenue for the company is double what it was in the 360 era. They have more active players than ever. They're expecting the gaming revenue for PCs to be a billion dollars this year. They think they're cranking and they think the way to continue success isn't a new Xbox, which, you know, there was a time when you and I were young where every couple of years, every few years, it was a new Nintendo, a new PlayStation, a new Xbox. Mm -hmm. But maybe they're right. I don't think there is an appetite for another $600 upgrade once you get everything. Yeah. I don't think there is. Uh, when I did the research this morning, the S is selling quite well, which is the low-powered digital-only one. Uh, that's what I have, in addition to a PS5. And I don't know, it doesn't it feel like they're they're putting their focus on the cloud gaming stuff anyway? And why not just lean into that? Most, I bet most people that have an Xbox probably have a broadband connection. Not everybody, OVS, but I bet the majority have a broadband connection. And Microsoft is probably going to figure out a way to make it really appealing to Xbox members and users to just stream those new games. Uh, they also announced a deal with NVIDIA for NVIDIA's GeForce streaming, where you can play some of the Microsoft games. If you have both services, if you have both Xbox Live and GeForce Now streaming, you can now link them and play the Xbox Live games using NVIDIA's high-end graphics on GeForce. Yeah, that's really cool. I know they have the PC games now, too, because I was... Uh... Just to try it out, playing Age of Empires to remastered Fancy Pants Edition, whatever they're called. Oh yeah. yeah, yeah. And just in uh in a Chrome window on on uh on Mac, so right. Yeah, I know. I love that. Um, I I think it's I think it's an I think it's a savvy strategy if they, and I wonder what Sony will do in Nintendo. I sort of have the sense Nintendo's probably going to do a hardware release. Uh, the Switch is the lowest end of all of them. Yeah, I think Nintendo's gonna have to. The problem is going to be compatibility. Um, you know, there's rumors of like a Switch Pro. Right. I don't know. I kind of feel like Nintendo is going to have to break break the cycle. If they if they do a new device anytime soon and it doesn't play the new Zelda game, that's that's going to be a no a non starter for a lot of customers. Well, you could do backwards compatibility is more what I'm thinking, right? But almost like they used to do with like the Game Boy Color, right? The Game Boy Color can play Game Boy games. But the Game Boy can't play Game Boy Color games. Yeah, mm, we'll see. 
it, it, I think new strategies are developing. And for Microsoft, you know, I think they're going to really focus on on streaming and trying to close that Activision deal. Which we should just note, the FTC now has come forward and said they're going to block. Oh, man. Okay. Today. This morning. <laughs> yeah. So they've got a fight uh, on their hands there. So that should be interesting. Well, I wonder if they can play a long game and bet on a different administration with a different uh, attitude towards that stuff. Mm-hmm. I don't know, though. Yeah. It's not a sure thing. Jacob writes into the show. He says, hey, Chris and Mike, I hope all is well. Been loving the show lately, especially the bacon on Mr. Altman. I think you're on the nose with the assessment of him selling the problem and the solution model. I have my own bacony question. Well, here you go, Jacob. How about a little bacon for you then? I think it's becoming increasingly more relevant, especially as hardware progresses. Does the tech stack really matter? As a hobbyist, I cut my teeth on Python early on. Then I switched to the Node.js React hotness, and I landed a few gigs in that area before deciding professional software dev wasn't for me. And I pivoted into a more academic industry that fit me better. I still never got over the whole choosing the optimal web stack fixation. A lot of people get stuck on that, though until recently. I've been diving back into Python for prototype projects, and I think I might just stick with it. I know for large, at-scale companies like Amazon or Google, optimization in the stack matters. But for most projects, does the tech stack really matter? I think about how Twitter started on Ruby and then switched to meet scale later as a great example of this. I'd love to hear what you both think. Yeah, I mean, I think there's a couple of things there, right? The the Twitter case is almost perfect because when you're a, a little project or a little company trying to get traction, your biggest thing is product market fit, right? Getting some iterations of MVPs out the door so you can actually see if your idea makes any sense at all, right? Is there a market? So in that case, you want to optimize for developer speed and not necessarily, you know, application throughput. With that said, I wouldn't go as far as to say it doesn't matter at all, but it doesn't matter as much as like Reddit would have you think it does. There are plenty of large scale applications and things like Python and Ruby that are doing just fine. And I certainly in most in most normal cases, right, you're usually going to be better off trading for developer productivity than like application throughput with the obvious exceptions of the Amazons. And, you know, I don't know what Twitter is doing right now, to be honest with you, but I believe it's all PHP now. I thought it was Java. The PHP developers, and I'm joking, the PHP developers are listening going, hello, you're describing us over here. Well, true. There's probably been no group of folks that have gone through the up and down. Like they're kind of in an upswing again now because mm-hmm. the PHP community stuck it out. They've developed something great over there. It's, it's remained consistent. But I think you could zoom out and this is a tooling problem. And I am so mad at myself right now because. I find myself once again thinking about, well, what setup should I use all day long and what monitors and computer and desktop environment. And, and, and I just went through this with my notes too. And it's like, why can't I just stick with anything? Um, I think in part it's because all of, all of it drives me nuts a little bit. And I, I think another thing I do, I don't know if this is true or not, but maybe when like, it's maybe almost like a form of procrastination and mm. burning my time setting up my computer and trying different desktop environments and instead of just working like I'm, maybe I'm avoiding work. It's fun to play around with rust or something instead of actually doing the hard problem that you actually have to do. Right. Yeah. It's uh, I, I would add 
there is an advantage to knowing a stack very well and working with it uh, consistently. It's not just the languages. Think about, let's like, say you're doing Ruby. Well, knowing Active Record super well will make you very efficient uh, in terms of getting, you know, get stuff done, right? Just getting things done rather than switching over to something else like, uh, I don't know, um, SQL Alchemy in Python, uh, which you would have to learn again. So uh, This just happened recently. I'm going to steal a story from our buddy Brent, but he was traveling to go to an important family wedding and they had asked him to do the photography for the event because before he's a podcaster, Brent's day job was photography, which when he uh, moved across the country for the, during the pandemic, he kind of set the camera down. And so it's been about two years. And so when he got the invite to come to the wedding to do the photography, he started looking at newer cameras thinking, I should probably upgrade this, make sure I have the right thing, get them the highest quality pictures possible, use the latest technology. And in the back of his mind, he thought, I don't know, you know, what I have is, it's true, it's tried, it's reliable, I know how it works, I know what its weaknesses are, I know how to operate everything I need to operate. I think I'll just stick with my current camera, he says to himself. And he, he sets off to head over, cross, back across the country, back to the family, and he describes it as one of those train, buses, and airplanes kind of events where a few hours of travel turned into nearly a three-day affair. And he had to, like, switch between multiple modes of transportation, rent a car, drive across the Canadian wilderness, literally pulling up at the wedding as it's starting. Oh, well. He stopped a few miles down the road at a rest stop and changed into his suit, got his camera ready, pulled up, walked in and started taking photos. And he said in that moment, it's like the two years since he'd picked up the camera had never passed. He knew where all of the manual controls were. He got every shot he needed to get. The tooling just completely worked for him and the job got done. And maybe you could have done that with new gear, but to be in a super high stress situation like that, to be using it in anger like that and to know exactly what it's capable of and how, and how the edge cases are, man, that can be really valuable too. And it's not to say don't switch it up, but you just got to make sure the reasons are right. And I think the best time to do it is a whole new project often. And sometimes you can migrate to that new project, but I don't think it's generally better when you already have something in progress. Yeah, and it comes down to if you're, you know, you're learning it out of curiosity, you want to try something new. Of course, that's cool. Just know, you know, know, know the trade-off you're making. But if you're if you're swamped, I you know, it's just tough to tough to justify the uh, you know, basically running weights on, right? Slowing yourself down. Linode.com slash coder. Head on over there to get one hundred dollars and sixty day credit on a new account. It's a great way to support the show, and you can check out the exciting news. Linode is now part of Akamai. All the developer-friendly tools like their cloud manager, their API, and the command line client that I love, all that stuff you use to build, deploy, and scale in the cloud, it's still there. In fact, now it's combined with Akamai's power and global reach. They're expanding their services to offer more cloud computing resources and tools while still providing that reliable, affordable, and scalable solution for you, as an individual, or for a business of all sizes. You can scale to millions. And as part of Akamai's global network of offerings, data centers are expanding. They're going all-in worldwide, giving you access to even more resources to help grow your business, your project, your community, help serve your customers. So why wait? Go experience the power of Linode, now Akamai. Visit linode.com coder to learn how Linode, now Akamai, can help you scale your applications from the cloud to the edge and see why we use it 
for everything we've deployed in the last few years. And that $100, that really lets you kick the tires. Linode.com slash coder. Well, I got a little reckless with my MacBook M1 Max. Oh, no. And I decided to deploy the Apple game porting kit, which you're supposed to use with Sonoma. But I wanted to get it working with Ventura, the previous release, the non-beta. And it definitely is more buggy on Ventura, so you really shouldn't do this. And man, do you really got to muck your Mac up. You know, like, remember when, like, it was really common in Linux to have a 32-bit and a 64-bit environment, and you had to make sure that you had the packages for both, and it was, like, managing two worlds? Yep. That's how this feels. Like, you got to make sure you have an x86 Rosetta terminal. Then you got to make sure you get Brew installed for the x86 environment. And then you got you to gotta use uh, Apple's formula for Brew to install Wine, which then patches it, and, oh, my God, it pulls down Wine. And all of its dependencies, GStreamer, FFmpeg, I mean, just hundreds of libraries and binaries that it pulls down and spews all over in an alternative brew location on your system. So now you have two brews to deal with and two different locations for the things they install. If you have any external monitors plugged in, the games crash immediately. <laughs> So you got to unplug all your external monitors for this to work. And the game frame rate is low. It's not great. It is definitely an environment that has been built first and foremost for debugging a game quickly. Apple's idea is you stand the game up in this environment. You start seeing what doesn't render correctly. You start figuring out where the performance issues before you go through all the trouble of porting. That it definitely seems to be out of, out of the box. However... The entrepreneuring community that they are, the Mac community, of course, has created a GUI wrapper. They've named it Whiskey, wine, but a bit stronger. And it gives you a UI on top of essentially the crossover code, crossover 22.1.1, and Apple's own game porting toolkit. It brings the two together and gives you a launcher, a UI, sort of the Lutris like you were talking about, to run all this. So within, within a few days, they basically created the launcher front end <laughs> to, to do all this. Yeah, there, there's a hunger on the Mac community, I think, for, you know, viable ways. The, the level of jealousy over Proton is, is pretty significant. Yeah, you know, and it's, it's clear a lot in the Mac community don't understand how this is standing on the shoulders of Wine, Crossover, and Proton. Uh, yeah, that's possible. I mean, it, it doesn't matter, though, because Mac gamers now have a new champion. A woman who has been to different galaxies, different dimensions, uh, at one point was a flying nun. And I am, of course, referring to Whoopi Goldberg, who amazingly took time out of her day to chastise Blizzard, Activision Blizzard, for not bringing Diablo, the new, what is it, Diablo 4, to the Mac. I could, in a million years, in a million years, Chris. Is this I, a real thing? This is a real thing. There's a whole video. She's like, What's her? I've been playing Diablo for apparently she's a huge Diablo fan and she is a ooh, Bobby Kotick you're in trouble think about it she's Guyan in in a Star Trek and she was a nun that means she has powers and you know just a propensity for violence so and anybody who's been to Catholic school knows exactly what I'm talking wait, about. Wait, is this like on a TV show she did this? How does this even happen? Why does she care? She just did this. Here, 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 here. I'll throw a link in the chat. You put a link in that. This is crazy. This, this is like, 
unexpected help, right? <laughs> All right, ready? Apple Insider. Diablo 4 skips back, and Whoopi Goldberg is mad about it. Oh, I see. So she wants to game on her Mac. I see. She wants to I play see. Diablo 4 on her Mac. Yeah, she has an Instagram. I mean, did we look at the commit notes for this whiskey thing? Maybe it's, you know, what if it just says Whoopi? Yeah, it's maybe it's Whoopi's the lead developer. Right. Yeah. Yeah, well, um, that's a surprise, I have to say. Of course, they've built it using Swift UI. Uh, they say it's a clean graphical wrapper for wine built in native Swift UI. Ooh. It'll manage your bottles and install and run apps and games. So it also will run Windows apps. I mean, a lot of the heavy lifting here is Rosetta. Yeah. So you're doing like a seven layer dip of emulation and translation here because you're running DirectX 12 and you're re-translating that into Metal and you're also running an x86 application which is getting emulated into x86 or translated, whatever you want to call it. Like that's a big stack of uh, a lot of in-between pieces that are going to just rob a little bit of performance here and there. So I still think people should keep expectations low because in the WWDC demos, they're running these on the M2 maxes and the frame rates still aren't great. Yeah, this is not, you know, this, you got to remember Proton took a long time to get where it is uh, on the Linux side. So if this is a serious thing, it'll be a while. While we're talking about graphics, um, well, I got a couple of other WWDC leftovers. I don't know if you saw, but Gruber did his annual talk show with the Apple executives where they answered literally no questions. And there's long, awkward pauses where Gruber just loses his train of thought. I, I, I just don't know why they, I don't know, man. I don't know. If, have you seen it? Well, when you get, when you get non-answer answers of that caliber, it's a little shocking. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You got to really, you really, I'm sure he really does have to pause and He's think like, about how to phrase the question. Yeah. yeah well, it, it's, uh, no, I, have, I haven't seen it yet, but it's my cue to watch. Uh, although maybe not worth it, huh? I don't know. Here's the, here's what I thought was the most interesting exchange and not necessarily great. You know, I was really critical of the Mac Pro. I think it's massively underwhelming. And they asked, uh, or I should say, John Gruber asked the Apple executives, what's the deal with the Mac Pro? What about getting some GPUs in there? Because, hey, I don't know if you've noticed, this is actually part of the question. He's like, hey, but you know, like this AI thing is kind of a big deal and it needs a lot of GPU compute. And you just launched a Mac Pro that has a fixed embedded GPU. Um, And their response was, quote, Fundamentally, we've built our architecture, referring to the Apple SoC, around this shared memory model and that optimization. And so it's not entirely clear to me how you'd bring in another GPU and do so in a way that is optimized for our systems. It hasn't been a direction that we've wanted to pursue. Well, you know, that seems like you're going to have a lot of empty space in that Mac Pro case then. Yeah, and so John says, well, what do you see the use cases for those PCI slots? And they say networking and audio capture um, came up. But that's kind of it. That's all they had. And it's so obvious it, it needs to be GPUs. It's, I mean, I, I, I don't understand why they couldn't at least allow you to have GPUs that you could use for compute pro- processing and not necessarily for graphics rendering, right? Something that you could put in the PCI slots, you could run software on the machine, it would detect the graphics cards, it could assign jobs to those graphics cards, and you would still be using the built-in M2 embedded video card for everything macOS is rendering on the screen. Seems like that should be, I mean, what am I missing here? It sounds like it's a limitation of their, uh, just what their, the path they've taken. 
Right, but okay, but then why does a network card work? Why can I have an? Why can I have external SATA storage? Can I fry some apple smoked bacon? Oh yeah, buddy. Uh, well, we had reporting from a number of sites that there's a little bit of a factional disagreement about the Mac Pro inside of Apple, and it seems pretty clear that this product is once again going back into the Disney vault for another 10 years. Yeah. Because the Mac Studio just makes so much more sense, especially if you're not going to allow, you know, standalone GPUs. And also, let's remember, if we're talking about machine learning, uh, you really want NVIDIA GPUs for the most part. And Apple really hates NVIDIA, so... It just seems suicidal to ignore the whole machine learning workload. Uh, because the Mac can be a pretty strong contender. You know, you could put a, a lot of open source packages on there and just run them directly. Yeah, I, I get that they want people to use the neural processor and the the uh, their stuff, and it is very, very competitive. But the reality is it's kind of sort of like it was back in the day of the Power Mac versus the Intel. There's just going to be a plethora of industry software that's going to be CUDA-focused. I don't know if people wrap, I know Mike has, but I don't know if everybody listening has wrapped their head around how hard of a stranglehold CUDA has given NVIDIA. It is their biggest moat maker. And um, Apple just has no solution. Apple's only answer for shops that want to buy really expensive computers to do CUDA stuff is to go to a PC manufacturer. It's crazy. It's a choice. I mean, it... Uh, we're either going to have this problem somehow resolved in the next iteration or this product line is is going on hiatus again. Yeah, that's it, huh? The the M3 based Mac Pro either has this capability or or they're yeah, it's a dead product and perhaps well cuz it doesn't make sense relative to the Mac Studio. Perhaps they just wanted to complete the transition and they didn't want to muck around with the plumbing of the SoC yet. Mm. See what didn't didn't we all think that the delay in the first place was to make this possible. Like what we freaking got was the exact same case, even down to like the stupid way where you have to unplug all the wires to take the, to take the case off. They, they left all the flaws with the case in there, same cooling system in there. And then they put a tiny SOC up on the top corner with a bunch of PCI slots. And we, what did we wait two and a half something, three years for exactly <laughs> what was the big delay? We thought that's what the delay was, was them figuring this out. I think the delay was, you know, certain parties at Apple just didn't want to do it at all. Yeah, but they had committed to it publicly. Well, that's probably why they did it, right? It's, yeah, so this is what they had to eventually just crap out. Is this compromise? I mean, you know how it is in big organizations. When somebody with enough power doesn't want to do something but kind of has to, they'll do it. But it's going to be the, you know, hot dogs and beans version, right? Damn. That's what this is. Given how good the Mac Studio is, yeah. obviously someone loves the Mac Studio and someone... Uh, this is the the fate of the Mac Pro. It's always the the stepchild. Yeah, it's weird. It's weird. that the, the, At both ends of the spectrum, Apple just neglects that hardware. And um, you know the new 15-inch Air, which, which I remind you is once you've bought it, is not upgradable. The 15-inch Air is shipping with 8 gigs of RAM and 256-gigabyte hard drive in 2023 for a $1,300 computer. I know. They're, they're so so stubborn about this 8 gig of RAM thing. It's, it's ridiculous. Yeah, no one should be buying anything with 8 gigs of RAM. I cannot believe any manufacturer is selling computers at that price with less than 16 gigs. 
should be we should 16 gig should have been the long long accepted floor for Mac OS for a long time. I mean, you put you put Chrome on there and a couple apps and you've literally used up all the memory in a brand new latest generation M2 based Mac and it's shared memory too, right? So some of that RAM has to go to the video. I just don't understand. It's so crazy to me. It's so it's so stingy. I mean, I, it's they might as well put a spinning rust in there while they're at it. Don't don't <laughs> say that. Don't give my ideas. All right. I wanted to do the Apple Vision Pro follow-up because I think both of you had gone through a this is ridiculous to, hey, wait, I think I see a use case here. I've also noticed a lot more people saying that than I expected. Have you changed your mind at all? Have you had any more thoughts about the Vision Pro if you think you're still going to be saving your pennies to get one? Yeah, I focused uh, more on taking a look at the sessions. I noticed a couple of things that were pretty... I think really smart on Apple's part. Uh, one, you can basically start prototyping your development for this today if you have a modern iPad Pro. I don't even think you really need the Pro, and uh, you know know how to do AR Kit, which is interesting. The Unity stuff, I'm sure Unity is going to come out with more tooling for it. Uh, app, obviously, app, they're Apple's partner, but it really, in a lot of like. I'm a little concerned because I think the first wave of apps that are going to come out for this are going to be basically shovelware, right? iPad apps in a window. But the APIs are more or less there. Uh, They're coming out with an SDK, whatever the hell that means, and a, uh, I'm sorry, a dev unit. So will that be like a Mac mini with with something, you know what I mean, strapped on it? Who knows? That's what they did for the M1 stuff. Yeah, or like an M2 computer with a cord going to a pass-through video yeah. headset or something. Yeah. I don't, you know, I don't think this is totally dead in the water. It is a big investment. And, in, well, it's it's not really. It's it, it's going to depend on what Apple does. Does Apple encourage really interesting experiences? Or do they want to hit a number and get, we have so many blah, 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 vision-compatible apps and allow it to become a race for shovelware? think we know what it's gonna be my bacon is they already have a whole bunch of these units uh jaws wozniak or whatever his name is jaws on this with in the in the gruber show said something kind of interesting he said uh they've been really generous and they've given all of my team units and i've been using it daily for a while Hmm. so a lot of folks in marketing had one already which makes me think, you know, if they've been working on this thing for five years, they may already have a good batch of them they could just sort of ship out to developers. Your buddy German, Mark German, in his uh, Power On newsletter, Such said that for Apple <laughs> Apple will have a more affordable vi- version of the Vision Pro by end of 2025, and they'll have a non-pro model simply called Apple Vision 1 or perhaps just Apple Vision. It'll be the cheaper consumer sort of like air-like product, which is exactly in line with what I think you and I would both expect. Yeah, that that sounds like the easiest. Sun comes up tomorrow prediction to make. I don't know. Is it worth it to try to get on get it on the ground floor with this? If you have an idea and you have the coding skills to do 3D graphics coding, maybe. There's a possibility here that there's a convergence of ideas that could really, really sell for an app in a VR headset. Uh, in episode 276 of the Coda Radio program, way back in 2017, 
Wes was filling in for me on that episode, and you guys were reflecting on the launch of ARKit mm. and how Apple was demoing it on the iPhone 10. And you had this observation, which I think is pretty prescient for the fa- since it was like 2017, you brought this up. So the challenge here is that AR really makes a lot of sense when paired with AI, though, right? Because you don't want your model, I mean, unless you're a video game, and that's kind of a different ballgame. You don't want your model to be stupid. And Apple has some pretty strict rules on user data that, as a consumer, I love. But as a developer, I'm like, dude, come on. <laughs> You're a little sandbox back. Right. I'm a little I, – I'm feeling the weight of the sandbox on me. It's one of those old Mattel turtle sandboxes. And it's <laughs> just like gross. Look at you talking about needing to integrate AI back in 2017 with an AR headset. Look at that. <laughs> I think you're right, though. I think, yeah, it's definitely going to be something. That could be useful, right? You had some sort of bard-like assistant or something, just an app hovering in there that you look at, and you can just ask it a question with voice, and it comes back with the response. I mean, these don't have to be complicated apps at the be- in the early days. They just really have to demonstrate some feature or technology that Apple likes that thrills users, and you know, you could build it on top of an existing API. I'm not saying build an empire on it, but to get your foot in the door with a new product, yeah, it's something there. So the challenge, right, now that we're in 2023, uh, the promise of Siri hasn't really come to fruition at all. Oof. So what is the built-in AI that you compare with, or is Apple going to let you do some weird like ChatGPT API thing? Because I bet they would have some concerns. Yeah. There is a rumor flying around this week that Apple has some super sophisticated large language model internally that they're playing around with. And that if, uh, if you work at the Apple campus, you can request access to use it and test it and that they're trying something out. You know, that the thing is, is this thing launches in early 2024. They may have some other shoes that drop beforehand that make this perhaps make even more sense. Um, I don't know how the hell they could do it. But an iPad or an iPhone that could take the 3D photos that you could then view later in the headset would be a real winner. So maybe something in the iPhone in the fall adds the capability somehow of taking these stereo photos. Oh, great. Because nobody, nobody wants to be the creep with the headset taking photos at the kid's birthday party. That was a bad image. And I think Apple regrets showing that. I'm pretty sure if you're like in the park, like if I'm in the park with my seven-year-old and there's some dude with one of these headsets on, I'm going to leave, take the kid and go. We're also two weeks in. Not a single Apple executive pictured wearing the headset. Not a single one of them at any event, at any publicity visit, at any call, during the hands-on demo, later, like when talking to Gail for Good Morning America, not once do you see any executive put the headset on. Imagine, imagine the iPhone launching and not having it in Steve Jobs' hand. Or when you picture Steve Jobs launching the iPad, you picture him holding up the iPad proudly on stage. Or when he took the air out of the envelope. They're never, ever going to re- remake that air out of the envelope move. That was, that was just good showmanship. I think it betrays a lack of confidence. Uh, yeah, because you look stupid wearing it. I think, I mean, Scott Galloway has been ranting about this uh, headset quite a bit, and he just released a blog post. I think he's overstating the case against it. But he's not wrong that you look like a jackass wearing this thing so yeah but i said the same thing about people wearing airpods they're white they stick out you look like a jackass you look like you spend a lot of money and that's exactly why people wanted to wear them yeah okay but isn't it isn't this closer to like the google glass no 
You don't think so? No, because the design, the design matters. That's, I think, what makes it the difference almost from like a piece of, like almost like a, not jewelry, but a display piece, right? A, Status. Like a, you're, yeah, yeah. You're like fluffing your tail feathers. Um, but the Google Glass thing, remember, it was wiry. It was geeky. The camera was so obvious. The cameras in this are behind that glass lens, right? It doesn't scream camera to you. Um, I don't know. We'll see. We won't know for a while. And the other thing is, imagine how fragile this thing has to be, right? Do you really want to walk around wearing this? I'm betting it feels more like the AirPod Maxes, like maybe too robust, too heavy, too that, solid. That's what I'm saying. But if if this thing ever hits the ground, it's it's break, 100% breaking. I don't I don't think there's any way with all those delicate cameras and all those delicate motorized screens, right? That the, it has the motor in there. Any right? Any resiliency of you know. Oh man, can you imagine somebody playing like a Beat Saber and they pop that thing off their head and they break their $3,500 toy? That's what that's what Twitter's going to be filled with day of. Like when the Nintendo came out with the yep. wands and everybody threw them at their TV. Yep. This is yep, it's going to be that. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'll look forward to that. Tailscale.com/coder. That's where you go to try it out for up to 100 devices for free. It's not even really a trial. You get it forever for 100 devices and now unlimited subnets while you're supporting the show. It's tailscale.com slash coder. So what is Tailscale? Well, Tailscale is a zero config VPN built for the modern era. You can get it on all your devices, mobile, desktop, VPS, VM, container, Linux, Mac OS, Windows, ARM, x86. You can get it on any of your devices in just minutes. You can easily create a mesh VPN network protected by WireGuard's noise protocol, building you the best VPN security in the biz with the simplest, most straightforward layout. The Tailscale client is smart. It only routes the traffic for your tailnet to your Tailscale clients. In other words, put more simply, only the traffic that's supposed to go to your Tailscale net goes to Tailscale. Everything else goes out to the internet or to your local computers, whatever it might be. That means you can leave Tailscale running persistently. So that network is always there. Like I run it on my phone 24-7 and I sync everything to my personal Nextcloud server that doesn't even have a public IP. It's all over Tailscale. The other thing that's really powerful about that is you can start bringing in devices that don't necessarily have the ability to install the Tailscale software on there. That's where the subnet routing comes in. For example, I have solar equipment at home that I want to be able to check to see how my solar production is doing. And it's old firmware, right? It's, it's a hardware device. I can't put Tailscale on there. But I've got an Odroid running Tailscale headless at home. And that has subnet routing turned on. And it will route the request for that LAN for my other machines that have the Tailscale client. And it works so well for my laptop, my desktop, my phone. I can just go right to my device and see how my solar is doing from anywhere in the world. Doesn't matter if it's behind double carrier grade NAT or anything like that. Tailscale just works. Lots of services are popping into Tailscale as well, making it just so smooth to do testing, to bring maybe somebody in to look at a project as you're building it out without having to expose it to the public internet. Go try it out. Support the show and go to tailscale.com slash coder. Today, as we record, it is June 12th and 7,807 subreddits have gone dark today in protest of a new API pricing change that affects third-party Reddit apps like Apollo and others. And along with that, a little salt in the wound, Reddit CEO, after going some like seven to 11 months, 10 months, 10 months, without ever interacting 
with the community, having no public interactions at all, announce the API change. And then, like someone who's never had any public relations training in their life, completely blew the interactions with developers in the AMA that they held, doubling down on positions that made them seem hostile to third-party developers. In a support of solidarity for these third-party apps that are shutting down as a result of these pricing changes, over seven, almost 8,000 subreddits have gone dark. Red Dark is tracking this, if you're curious, after the fact. By the time this episode comes out, it'll be a couple of days into this. So you can go to Red Dark. Uh, we'll have a link in the show notes for that. Yeah, what's your what's your initial take on this? Because this is a really kind of complex issue. I mean, unfortunately, I probably have a very unpopular take. Uh, you know, when you're building on somebody else's API, basically they're Darth Vader in a, you know in Cloud City. They can alter the deal whenever they want to. I, I think this guy going on an AMA and trying to justify himself was not wise. If you're going to do something like this, you of course, have every right to do it, uh, but you just do it and, and basically shut up, right? You don't. You don't uh, you're not going to make people whose apps you're screwing over like you. It almost makes me wonder if that's what this guy was brought in for. Was this sort of hatchet work here? Part of the wrinkle to this, though, is he lied. He misrepresented the call he had with the Apollo developer, and the Apollo developer, who's a Canadian citizen, recorded the calls, and so could say verbatim what was said and wasn't said. And the Reddit CEO is misrepresenting parts of the call. Yeah. 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 I mean, he he just shouldn't have done any of that, right? I mean, we mentioned it at the top of the show where you mentioned it that ad rates are in the toilet and Reddit is an ad supported website. They're like everybody else having to turn the crank on uh, revenue. Twitter just did this too not long ago. It's, uh, if anything, the lesson here. And we, I used to talk about this all the time with my old app code journal, right? The lesson here is if your application is completely dependent on a third-party API, that's just a bad position. Yeah, you're, you're 100% right. I'm going to steel man it for a second. Uh, kind of, you know, lessons learned from Twitter and whatnot. Reddit, over the last few years, has really cranked up the dial on funneling you into their official app. Like, if you go to mm-hmm. Reddit on a mobile web, they really try to force you into their app. They're really trying to get everybody to use the official Reddit app. And the problem is, is I don't like the official Reddit app. And I've been a Reddit user since before Dig shot itself in the foot. I just kind of migrated over time to third-party apps because it was a more pleasant experience. And without those third-party clients, I have no intention of using Reddit. So... I feel like there is that angle. These developers have made Reddit accessible to a group of people who disagree with the direction of the company. I don't think I've ever seen an ad in Apollo. I don't think I've ever seen, I don't know, maybe. I don't really pay attention to those, but so there, it is kind of like Apollo has built a subscription business and others, I'm just using them as an example, have built a subscription business off of Reddit's API and data. But But to me, it seems like Maybe there was a happier middle ground here. Instead of jacking the rate up so high where you'd basically have to charge the, the these third-party client developers would have to charge every user $10, $11 a month to use the app. Instead of going that route, why not go the route that seems to maybe started this whole snowball in the first place, which was Reddit coming to the realization that OpenAI was scraping 
their API for data to train their models. And that's what I think really started this conversation. So why not build a business model around coming up with the price for old Sam Altman to pay, charging them, making a lot of the revenue on the API there, and then coming up with much, much, much more reasonable, perhaps half price rates for these app developers where maybe they could charge users four or five dollars a month, which some of them are already charging. Okay, because the Reddit is run by media people who know who basically know how to sell ads. Um, they are probably not really interested in that kind of business model. And if the, even if they are, they could do both, right? It doesn't change the underlying truth that the literal CPM rates are so low right now that Reddit now, think about this, they have to sell more to your ads. I don't see how they could do it. Yeah, it is at the end of the day, you're right. The issue is ad revenue. Even if they had some sort of agreement for API usage where you couldn't remove the ads, there would inevitably be people that create clients that remove that. Well, and that's <laughs> that's something that Twitter, right? And Twitter is, I think, the best corollary here because before Elon bought it, they tried something like that where they tried to force the feed to be the same no matter if you were using their client or not. And it just turned out to be a hell of a lot easier for them to say, you know what, no more clients. Yeah. And now they can give you the ad. And in my case, they're all crypto ads for some reason. So Reddit is in a really weird position because they've got sort of these category developers who have built a business off of Reddit's API feed. But Reddit itself has really scaled its business from free labor from the community moderators that that actually moderate Reddit at a scale that is possible versus Reddit having to hire tens and tens of thousands of people to do manual moderation. And those moderators are more in tune with those communities. It It obviously is a more organic fit. But when it comes to the reaction, the moderators are the ones that are protesting and striking. Not, I mean, the developers, some of them are closing down their app, but it's, it's Reddit's free labor force that is actually the one that is causing harm to Reddit right now uh, as a response to Reddit's decision to try to dr- derive revenue from, I guess, a group of moochers, if you would take that term. And I just find this to be a really fascinating dichotomy because Reddit is kind of upset that the developers are freeloading. Meanwhile, Reddit's been freeloading off of their moderators since its existence. Yeah. I mean, again, though, if you've been deep in a Reddit community that you care about, sure, you might go dark for a day or two, but are you really going to lose all that history and those relationships you've built with? I mean, this is, remember how upset we were when Google, uh, oh my God, Google the Health Plus went down? Because we used it, I know you used it all the time. I used it all the time too, right? Little, in fact, it was better than Reddit, to be honest. And Google just killed it. Because they're Google yeah. and don't have to care, but this is Reddit's whole business. Their business is being Reddit, so I don't, I don't know. I mean, it's also we should be very careful. They didn't just shut down the API; they made the prices astronomically high. Yes. So your case, your argument that they could just charge a good old Mister Altman, they probably can, right? So you're probably right, and still the end users, the people like me who you know on the toilet like to read the R slash Ruby subreddit, right? are going to still have to use their client and still be forced to see um, just endless ads for Magic the Gathering, Lord of the Rings right now is what my Reddit ads are. But I've heard it suggested, and I think I agree, that free API access 
was a symptom of low rates and easy money. Mm. And when things get tight and companies need to produce revenue from more traditional sources and they have to demonstrate value, things like free API access are going to start drying up. I think that's uh, very likely, right? uh, Yeah, that makes just a ton of sense. And also, you know what? These, These sites don't last forever, really. They don't. Yeah, there's something like called Jammy that people are uh, checking out. Of course, there's some stuff built on top of Noster. Well, you mentioned Dig earlier in the show, and I totally had forgotten about Dig, but I used to like Dig, right? Oh, yeah, Uh, man. uh, How about, uh, what was it, uh, Tech TV? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And then when they call themselves G4 or something? Well, they got bought out by Comcast. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So the stuff goes away. and It does. Yeah. Yeah, and I don't really actually get the long game here. Like, some of these... Some of these subreddits are going dark indefinitely. Some of them are doing it for a couple of days. But, like, they're not, like, leaving, right? They're not deleting the subreddits. They're just shutting them down for a little while. Like, what's... Well, they're just making them private. So I don't think there is a long game. That's kind of what I'm saying. They'll be back. Yeah, I I hate to say it, but I think long-term, this isn't really going to hit Reddit that hard. Nope. I think it's a damn shame, though. Um, You know, like, the Apollo developer... I want to, the reason why I keep mentioning that one is because not only was a lot of this focused around him, but uh, I saw his post eight years ago when he announced, hey, I'm thinking about doing this thing. Would anybody interested in a, an Apollo or would it be interested in a Reddit client kind of designed for iOS? And people were like, yeah, give it a go, man. Give it a go. And I remember when I saw him post his first release mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, here he is eight years later and he's got a full time business with tens of thousands of, of users. It's a. Uh, it's awesome to see that, that one person still could could make that journey. But he was essentially getting subsidized by a free API. Um, and I, and I, these subreddits, you know, ultimately, they're not the app developers. I know that they're doing this in, you know, solidarity, but I think ultimately a lot of them, most of them are going to give in. And I don't think in a week even or two weeks, it's going to be 7,800 that are locked down. It's going to be a lot less. Yeah, they're going to give in. And, and you know what? The Apollo developers, talented dude. I mean, I, I wouldn't be shocked if, as this process started, he didn't start thinking of what his next idea is going to be. Yeah, go figure out what the next Reddit is and build a beautiful client for that, because it undoubtedly will need it. Build a nice Matrix client. <laughs> yeah, there you go. There's still room for that. Four score and seven boosts to go. All right, we got some boosts. Got some boo boo boosts. We got 30,000 sats from Average Joe, and there's nothing average about that boost. Hey, uh, that is our baller boost this episode, and he says, stay humble, stack sats, and keep that bacon frying. We brought a stack of bacon this week. The studio smells delicious. Noob Steve comes in with 24,444 sats. I hoard that which your kind covets. He says, I know I'm in the minority here, but man, am I excited to see what comes of this Apple gaming stuff. It might be a few years, but the second I know it works well, I can play AAA games on a Mac. I'm going to toss my Windows laptop and get a MacBook Pro immediately. Also, for the headset, I think it'd be awesome from work for home stuff, especially for the companies that want to have always on cameras. You can just be right there in the app. It detects when it's on your head. Not that that's any kind of privacy invasion. (laughs) Also, he sent in a row of uh, McDucks to help out with the uh, trip. I'm going on a road trip and I'm going to be using some sats along the way. Thank you, sir. Thank you very much. And here's something for your trouble. He brings up a pretty creepy point. The eye tracking in the uh, Apple Vision Pro is extremely accurate, but going through the WWDC sessions, 
I'm pretty sure I saw like Apple extract or, or abstracts that information away. The developer can't actually get precise eye tracking information directly, I think. Yes, I think, uh, and this is something I want to clarify when I finally finish the very generous amount of sessions they have going. It seems like what it does is it gives you what items you're visually focused on. Ah, well, that could still be probably sufficient. Well, because you need to know what, you know, how you need the information, but they don't give you the raw like movement data. But other questions like what about people who have like slightly lazy eyes or uh, or like a slightly lazy eye, right? Or I know if I have to do an all nighter, like weirdly enough, my left eye gets weird the next day. That's how you know you've done too many overnighters. <laughs> right. Or if you're schlagered, right? I mean, you know, there's. Yeah. Seem, it seems like there's ways this could get weird. But it, I'm wondering half, if, like, if you're in Zoom, could Zoom be aware if you're roughly looking at the video window or if you're looking at a different app? I bet it might. Ooh, ooh I don't like that. Yeah, I wonder. Hmm. Imagine the HR cases where, where now we know exactly where you were looking. Right. Yikes. Mm. Yikes. Don't tell Jeffrey Tubin. Golden Dragon comes in. He did a pre-show boost before even listening. He sent in a row of ducks because he was just ready. His body was ready for our WWDC coverage. He says the economic timing on the AR headset is just sort of late stage capitalism talking, especially that Tim Cook Cook quote about people will afford what they can afford. Uh, He says, and he's looking forward to the Reddit coverage as well. Yeah, Tim Cook. He's got to be so disconnected from people who are having a hard time choosing if they're going to skip, you know, meat this week or something. Like, I just don't think he can. And maybe that's just not who he's trying to target. Well, and they've been working on this thing for five years, right? So. Right. In the, in yeah. the height of the just bender that was the the uh, free money boom cycle. So. Um, I, I, there are many things about this that are giving me HomePod vibes. A, it's going to be good. B, it's something you can't understand until you use it it's true and see it's extremely good technology but that good technology makes it higher price than its equals or competitors direct competitors in the market and uh i'm gonna give a d here too uh d apple started working on the home pod before the video echoes and google devices came out it took them so long to develop and ship the home pod that by the time they got it to the market the market had moved on and wanted photo frames and they wanted the speakers to show them the weather. And if you're going to be charging almost $400 for a speaker and it doesn't even have a screen, you you get laughed at. I, I mean, all those things, all those criticisms of the HomePod, I think line up with the Vision Pro. I do love my HomePods. Yeah, they are great. They, I mean, I use them every day with my TV, every single day. And it's so clever about how it, how it does the audio. I just love that we have one in the kitchen, which is yep. play music, hang out, and uh, I can do my coding. And it's, you know, they sing even across rooms, they sync together really well. So Saturday night, we were all hanging out in the living room, doing our own thing, but listening to music on the HomePods, just enjoying yep. each other's companies for a couple hours. It was great. Yeah, I think that's what, although the headset won't be that, that shared thing, but I think it does match all those criticisms. And that, boy, that's going to be a big hill to climb. Although there's going to be a lot of very funny cases where, you know, kid puts on dad's headset. Hmm. Yeah. You, well, know. Hmm. you know, the thing is, though, the HomePod really lives and dies on Siri. And the headset won't have that constraint. Do you use that person with your HomePod? 
I do. I don't. Um, I always. It's frustrating. Yeah. But I do. I do because it works so freaking great with Home Assistant. It's so fast. Oh, because you have the Home Assistant stuff. Okay. Yeah. I don't yeah. have that. Yeah. But it's still. Yeah. Like she just right. never gets the right song, or like the album. But anyway. Miramodal's podcast comes in with a row of ducks. I'm curious to know what the longest you guys have ever pre-recorded ahead is. I think I did like two or three weeks ahead once, and I didn't like it. Kind of felt like the show was living in the past, even though it wasn't about current news or anything topical or trendy. Hmm. Maybe three episodes is the furthest. We've done three, and then we were pissed off because there were a bunch of announcements that would have yeah. made it. <laughs> yeah, I remember this. It was, it was, And it was something crazy. It was like the good, juicy drama stuff that makes yeah. doing the doc super easy. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, that does sound right. I have a tough time, honestly, even with doing the show on Monday and it comes out on Wednesday, which is totally, totally acceptable. Uh, but that even that can be tricky sometimes. Like today we're talking about the Reddit blackout. Totally different story by Wednesday. So, uh, you know, you do kind of adapt over time uh, for the pre-records and figure out what's a little more evergreen and save that for the pre-record. And that kind pre-records of are more work, I think. But Oh, my gosh. Oh, my gosh. I'm, I did doubles of LUP yesterday. We're doing doubles of coders today. I'm going to be doing another LUP later this week. I'm going to be doing just like, I'm just stacking shows for this trip I'm going on. Uh, but we'll see. Some people may not even notice. Bond comes in with 2,345 sats, 2345. And he says the era of sats standard has begun. Boosting on podcasting 2.0 and zaps on Noster are just the beginning of something much bigger. I agree. I've been watching it grow like crazy. When I, when I first started doing boosts on the show, there were 4,000 podcasts at the time that also accepted boosts. Now, there's something like 13,000 podcasts just yep. a year later doing yep. it. So there's something there. DPG says, happy Father's Day to us. He says, you guys are good dads. Oh, thank you. Sets. Well, thank you. Yeah, happy Father's Day to all the dads yes. out there. Uh, Sync Mitty comes in with 10,000 sats. Hey, all right. Thank you, sir. It's over 9,000. Have you guys looked into the Noster community at all, uh, which I think stands for notes and other things through relays? I'd love to hear you guys set up a relay on self-hosted and code a client on Coda Radio. I don't even know what this is. So Noster is a protocol that is sort of the back end for building um, like a decentralized telegram or Twitter oh, okay. or eBay or Craigslist where everything's kind of passed through relays and a client subscribes to different topics to that relay. I'm probably butchering this, but this is the general idea. And so this system is decentralized. There's no cryptocurrency, but people have because, you know, of course. They have layered lightning and, and sats on top of it to send each other zap. So a like is a zap, and it could be like, you know, a certain amount of sats that you get. So instead of just like it meaning nothing, it's like somebody tossed a little bit into to make that like worth something. So that's a zap. I know. It's new. I've been watching it. Uh, what I want to see is a couple killer apps develop on it that can scale. And then I'm, you know, I'll jump in. Sort of how those things work. Yeah. Mino comes in, or M-N-O, M-E-N-N-O, with 11,000 sats. Hey, thank you. Coming in hot with the booth. In fact, it's 11,111 sats. It says, keep on being bringing the snark. <laughs> I don't think we can help it. We, I know, right? We, you're fine. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and our uh, last boost that makes it on the air this week is from Hasmpy for 2,000 sats. A useful website that I've bookmarked is endoflife.date, which clearly lists when the official support for a bunch of packages and distros ends. I use it to help decide which version of software I want to deploy, and it lets me check how much time I have left to update my project dependencies. I've got to admit, though, my favorite way to use it is to show my colleagues that Python 2 stopped being supported three years ago. 
<laughs> That's just brutal. Oh, uh, I hope you find it useful. Uh, so it is endoflife.date for that. <laughs> That's so great. Thank you, everybody who boosted in. We really appreciate it. We have the 2000 sat cutoff, but we read all of them and save them all in our doc. So you're enshrined in there forevermore. We got 91,121 sats from 10 boosters this week. We won't have the boost in next week's episode because uh, that's going to be a pre-record, but we will then catch up. So do keep sending those in because your support is appreciated. Our philosophy is to lean on the value for value model, create our largest customer out of our audience and avoid all of the crappy toothpaste delivery ads and all that kind of stuff. And our members play a big role in that too. CoderQA.co. You sign up for a monthly membership. You support the show ongoing. And as a thank you, you get the ad-free feed. And you get the Coderly when we release it at CoderQA.co. Or you can support all the shows at Jupiter.party. Mr. Dominic, is there anywhere you want to send the peeps? Uh, go to Alice.dev and uh, at Dimonuko on the elephant and the bird. Yeah. Oh, nice. Yeah, I, I am tiptoeing into Mastodon. I just don't need a lot of social. I'll say find me on Matrix. You can find Coder Radio's Matrix chat room at Coder.show slash Matrix. And then explore out from there. There's lots of great rooms. Thanks so much for joining us on this week's episode. Links to what we talked about today are at coder.show slash 522. And of course, lots of other great shows over at jupiterbroadcasting.com. Thanks so much for joining us. And we'll see you right back here next week.